Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. A couple of things about today's story. Firstly, apologies for the croaky voice in some parts. Clearly, I've been partying too hard during lockdown. <laughs> Not. Secondly, today's story deals with brutal crimes against women. It is definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion is advised. So, with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story starts out in Indonesia, a country made up of an archipelago of many thousands of islands and known for its beautiful beaches, ancient temples, and home of the Komodo dragon. It was 2001, and 24-year-old Chandra Wawaruntu was struggling. Just a few years before, she'd had a great job as an international money market trader with a bank, a loving husband, and a beautiful baby daughter. But then, in the late 90s, Indonesia suffered an economic and political crisis, which saw many companies fold under the pressure. Her company was hit hard by the crisis, and in 1998, Chandra was let go from her job. With millions of people unemployed due to the crisis, work was hard to come by. When Chandra could find work, it was often at rates lower than the minimum wage. And then... To make matters worse, her beloved husband died quite suddenly, leaving her bereft, alone, and with even more deepening financial worries. She battled on for years, living a hand-to-mouth existence, always on the hunt for work, often going without meals in order to feed her daughter. But then, one day, she was looking at the available jobs in the newspaper, when one advert caught her eye. It was an opportunity to work as a waitress in the hotel industry for six months in Chicago, United States. Chandra knew that the money that she could earn in America would be greater than anything she could earn at home and would keep her and her daughter going until the economic crisis was over, when she could find work again in Indonesia. She responded to the advert and was invited to an interview. She was asked many questions, asked to fill out paperwork, and was even asked to take tests. But not once did they ask her if she could speak English. But she figured she'd be able to learn the language while she was in America. A few days later, Chandra was told that she'd been accepted for the position. Oh, she was so, so excited and it wasn't just the prospect of making a lot of money to support her and a daughter that excited her. It was the fact that she was actually going to go to America. She loved watching Western movies with the big handsome actors, the shiny big cars, and the blonde-haired people. She had dreamed all her life of going to America, and finally her dream was going to come true. So I was excited to go to the U.S. for six months. It is an American dream for me. She filled out the paperwork for her temporary six-month visa. However, 
she was told by the recruiter that she needed to pay $3,000 in order to file the paperwork with the authorities. Chandra was shocked and had second thoughts, but the recruiter told her that she would earn $30,000 during the six months that she was in America. And that was an amount she could only dream of making in Indonesia. And so she paid the fee. A few weeks later, Chandra was told that her visa had been approved. She was leaving for Chicago in a week. She was going to fly from Jakarta to New York and then on to Chicago. And a week later, Chandra hugged her daughter tightly as they said goodbye at the airport. She would be staying with Chandra's mother while she was away. It broke Chandra's heart to leave her daughter, but she knew this was an opportunity of a lifetime that she couldn't afford to miss. And so, with one last squeeze, she promised her daughter she'd be back in six months. She let her daughter go and walked through the doors of the departure hall, boarded the plane and set off for her American dream. Little did Chandra know, she would never arrive in Chicago, and she would never see her homeland again. In fact, the only aspect of truth that Chandra had received from the recruiter was that she was going to start a new life in America. But it wasn't going to be the American dream. This is Dark Side, and I am your host. Sue's. So, where did Chandra end up if not in Chicago? And how come she would never see her homeland again? Hmm. Let's find out. In the arrival, someone had my picture. After he picked me up, I realized many people lined up behind me. There were five more people with the same destination. Chandra felt increasingly uneasy as girl after girl queued up behind her. And they were all young Asian women like herself and all recruited by the same agency, owned by a man called Johnny Wong. When all the girls had arrived, Johnny Wong told them that as it was so late, they'd be staying at a nearby hotel for the night, and would fly into Chicago in the morning. The girls were put into a car, and they began to drive. And when Chandra realised that they'd driven past all the airport hotels and were now in fact heading away from the airport altogether and into the city, alarm bells started to ring. The other girls were becoming nervous too, but when any one of them queried where they were going, they were told it wasn't much further. Finally, they pulled up at a very run-down hotel, and as the car pulled into the forecourt, a man approached the car. Johnny told the girls to stay put, as he needed to discuss some business with the man. And I saw from inside the car window, that man handed a big envelope of money to Johnny, and Johnny counted the money. 
the man whom had handed over the cash looked into the car and pointed to a girl. Johnny forcibly removed the girl from the car and handed her over to the man. Johnny got back in the car and they set off driving again. By now, the girls were anxious. They were confused and didn't understand what was happening. What they just witnessed didn't seem right to Chandra. But maybe this is how business is conducted in America. Over the course of the next three hours, similar transactions happened at three other locations. Each girl more nervous than the last as they were led from the car to be handed over to a man with a cash exchange. And with each transaction, Chandra kept wondering. If they were all heading for Chicago in the morning, why were they being split up? Oh, they asked Johnny what was going on, why they were being split up. But he offered no explanation, other than they would be arriving at their destination soon. At one of the stops, Chandra had tried to alight from the car to ask if she could use a restroom, but the doors had a similar locking mechanism to that of police cars. They couldn't be opened from the inside, making Chandra feel even more uneasy. Finally, Johnny pulled up outside a run-down house, and he told Chandra and the other two remaining girls to get out. When they climbed out of the car, Johnny rummaged through each of the girls' bags and confiscated their passports and all of their money. Chandra asked why he was doing this, and he told her that it was to protect her. New York was a very dangerous place, and it was better that he held on to their money and documents for safekeeping. Again, Chandra thought this an odd practice, but maybe he was right. She didn't want to have her precious passport be stolen. Johnny led the girls into the house, and as they moved into the living room, Johnny called out, Mama-san, a new girl! And Chandra's heart jumped in fear. She knew that term, Mama-san. She'd heard it on many documentaries and news reports back in Indonesia. It was the name assigned to Asian women who were in charge of brothels. Was she in a brothel? No. She couldn't be. But, looking around the shabby living room, with its curtains closed, music blaring, and a disco ball permanently rotating in the centre of the ceiling, a slow wave of fear started to creep over her body. Why had Johnny brought them here? Chandra began to shake as the alarm bells were now clanging in her head. Something that hadn't gone unnoticed by Mama Sam. It's okay, I'll take care of you. You will start working today. And Chandra was confused. She was to start work today? But they weren't in Chicago, and they weren't at a hotel. They seemed to be in a seedy brothel somewhere in New York. Just exactly what work was she supposed to be doing? Mama San instructed Johnny to take the girls to their room, and Chandra felt a slight moment of relief. Phew, they weren't going to be working. Mama San had been joking with them. They were going to go to bed, and she couldn't wait. It had been a long journey, and she was exhausted. But 
as they ascended the stairs, her relief dissipated with each room that they passed. Rooms with open doors, rooms whereby horrors were taking place beyond the thresholds. And I saw the girl giggle from the room. I saw another girl screaming. And I saw a little girl on the floor. Someone kicked her, beat her up, and I saw a fresh blood came out from her face. This really was a brothel. Johnny had brought them to a brothel. Chandra was too shocked at what she was witnessing in room after room that they passed to be able to voice her fears. But when they were led into the attic bedroom, a room with only one king-size bed in the centre and little other furniture, and strewn all over the floor were used condoms, well, Chandra rounded on Johnny and demanded to know what was going on. But he just chuckled. <laughs> by now, the other girls were visibly shaken and afraid by what they'd seen when they descended the stairs and at Johnny's callous chuckle. So, Chandra tried to maintain the calm by asking him when they could retrieve their suitcases as they'd like to freshen up and change their clothes. A sly smile came over his face as he told them, they wouldn't be needing their clothes anymore. And then, Johnny made a demand of the girls. Open your clothes, open your clothes. I want to see your skin. Chandra protested. Absolutely not. The two younger girls had hidden behind her for protection, leaving Chandra to be the one to challenge him. Johnny started walking towards her the sly smile growing broader until it became a grimace. When his nose was almost touching hers, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a gun. Slowly, he raised the gun and placed the barrel against her forehead. With his free hand, he ripped Chandra's clothing off. She stood there, frozen, paralysed with fear. But... She had no choice but to comply. He held the gun, and the gun meant that he had control. And when all three girls were naked, he raped each one of them in turn, forcing the other girls to watch, never taking his hand off the gun. The younger girls cried, sobbed, and screamed through their ordeal. And the more they wailed, the more pleasure Johnny seemed to get. So, when it was her turn, Chandra mustered all her steel and refused to utter a sound throughout the entire ordeal. She closed her eyes and prayed to God that they'd get to Chicago soon so that she could get away from this hell. When he was done, the girls huddled together, naked, crying, bewildered and terrified. And this is when Johnny told them that they owed him $30,000 each before they would be released, and he would knock off $100 for every man they serviced. Serviced? What did he mean, serviced? And why did they owe him $30,000 each? 
She was supposed to be there to make $30,000, not owe it. Chandra just couldn't get her head around what was actually happening to her and the other girls. It just didn't make any sense. Why were they being subjected to this utter hell? She opened her mouth to protest, but Johnny silenced her with a wave of the gun. Johnny told the girls to get some sleep, as they had a big day tomorrow. And they were forced to sleep together in the king bed, wearing only the clothes they'd travelled in. The girls huddled together, holding each other for warmth, and softly crying long into the night, whilst Johnny slept soundly on a chair that was placed in front of the door, to ensure that the girls couldn't leave. The next day, the girls, still wearing the clothes they had travelled in, were told they had been taken to be fitted for their uniform, and Chandra's heart leapt with joy. Finally, they were going to Chicago to work in the hotel. Finally, she would be getting away from this tawdry, dirty hell. But her hopes were soon dashed, when instead of going to a uniform store, they were taken instead to a lingerie store. The other two girls were elated with the pretty, luxurious, lacy clothing, not realising the intimation behind this uniform. Well, they were only 18 and 15 years old. Yes, you heard that correctly. 15 years old. But Chandra, at 24, understood the implication of the skimpy lingerie their new supposed uniform. And all her hope and desire for the American dream evaporated as the realisation finally swept over her in nauseous waves. That she wasn't going to be working in a hotel. And she wasn't going to Chicago. Because there had never been any hotel work or waitress job. She was in America for one reason only as a sex worker. She didn't know why she hadn't realised it before, when she saw the girls being exchanged for cash, when they were taken into the brothel, when their passports and money were confiscated, or when they were brutally raped by Johnny in a room littered with used condoms. Maybe because this had been her one shot at the American dream, she just hadn't wanted to connect the dots. But the dots were now firmly connected, and as a see-through crotchless lingerie piece was being pressed into her hands, she shook with fear as to what hell the future would hold for her. But whatever was going to befall her, she knew one thing. I have to be strong by my own, and what I think was my daughter dancing in my head that I will have to survive to come home for her. All of the girls were given a new name. Chandra's was Candy. Their picture was taken and they were given an ID with their new names. And as Chandra was handed her ID, she was told never to use her real name again. And Chandra felt the last vestige of her old life had been stolen from her. Johnny told her that she had a quota of $2,000 a day to earn each day. 
that's 20 men a day. And that is not including the daily rates from the captors themselves. If she didn't make her quota, she would be beaten and denied food. Even when she did meet her quota and was given food, it was barely edible. Their diet was a rotation of congee, which is a type of rice porridge or gruel. Also cabbage and takwan, which is a pickled yellow radish. However, if she could meet her quota, Chandra realised that at $2,000 a day, she would only have to work for Johnny for 15 days to repay her so-called debt. And then she would be free at last. But not only was the quota hard to meet, as it was dependent on the number of men that were brought to her, but if a man requested her for an entire night, it would only count as one service. A service was classed as per client, not per hour. So, there were some days that she would work for 18 hours, but only make a few hundred dollars. Also, they always found ways to increase her debt by adding on costs for food, clothing, housing. And as the days passed, her debt seemed to get bigger, not smaller. Months passed in a blur of hotel rooms, casinos, brothels and countless, nameless, faceless men that beat her and abused her. She and the other girls were moved around every few days, being handed from one brothel owner to another, one location to another. It wasn't until many years later that she was to find out that they moved the girls often to avoid detection from the police. However, one of the men that frequently moved them around wore a police badge. <laughs> oh, gosh. Unbelievable. The girls were forced to drink alcohol and take drugs every day. If they protested, their mouths would be forcibly opened and intoxicants would be poured down their throats. And, of course, it wasn't long before they all became addicted. But even a drug and alcohol fueled haze didn't blunt the trauma of what they suffered day in and day out. Chandra was constantly thirsty. All they were given to drink was alcohol. Occasionally, a client would buy her a soda and she'd gulp it down in one go. You see, in Indonesia, they weren't allowed to drink the tap water as it was unsanitary. But nobody told her that she could drink the water from the tap in America. Chandra and the girls never knew if it was day or night. The curtains on the windows of all the brothels were always closed, and disco balls and music would play 24 hours a day. Only once per day was she aware of the time, and that was at midnight, when she would be made to dress up, and she would be taken out to the casinos. She'd walk by the regular, normal Americans playing on the machines and at the tables, whom would pass admiring glances at this Asian beauty that walked by them, dressed up like a princess. And not one of them ever noticed that she was a slave.
as the months were passing, she was picking up more and more words in English. Not enough to hold a conversation, but enough to speak a few words. One night, a bachelor party acquired her services for the night. It was the first opportunity she'd had to be away from her captor, and with American people. She tried to ask them for help, but they didn't understand her, or wouldn't understand her through their drunken, lustful haze. So, if you're probably wondering if Chandra ever tried to escape this living hell, well, of course she did, many times, but... I'm able to escape all the time, but the gun is a symbol of the death. So I was afraid with the death. Once I fight, at that moment I thought I can fight, and the hunting knife sliced my neck, and I learned... I will have to comply with what they ask me to do. So, she had no choice but to obey and continue to take the rapes and the beatings and the abuse so that she could one day see her daughter again. But the constant abuse day in and day out was taking its toll on Chandra. She was beginning to think that she'd never escape. They were watched almost 24 hours a day, and when they weren't being watched, they were kept locked up. With escape seeming beyond the realms of hope, Chandra contemplated suicide. Every day was a living hell, and even though her daughter's face danced in front of her tightly squeezed shut eyes through each and every abuse, willing her to go on to survive. Her will to live was failing her as she realised she may never see her daughter again. Throughout the months, she had met many other girls also being trafficked. And as they moved from location to location, the girls were mostly foreign and from many different countries, all duped under the same ruse of an American dream. The girls tried to look out for each other, hiding food and giving it to those that hadn't met their quota, and cleaning and dressing wounds after they'd been beaten by a client or their captors. One day, one of the girls she'd met a few times at the brothels pressed a piece of paper into her hand whilst the captors weren't looking, and told her, Keep this phone number. When you paid off the debt, you can call this person and this person will help you to get the job, what you want, in the hotel, in the bank, anywhere, he can help you. Chandra hid the piece of paper in the lining of a bag so that the traffickers wouldn't find it. Whilst their luggage, passports and cash had been confiscated when they first arrived at the brothel, the girls had been permitted to keep their handbags. Oh, Johnny had rummaged through their handbags to remove anything that could identify them but he had failed to see a secret pocket inside her bag. Before she'd left Indonesia, her mother had told her to sew a false lining into a bag and to keep just a little cash and a copy of her passport in there, just in case anything should happen. <laughs> Wise woman. And so 
Chandra still had these precious pieces of paper, the last reminder of whom she really was, hidden away in the lining. And this is where she put the phone number, her only lifeline in the United States. After being slashed with a knife for fighting back, Chandra had given up any hopes of escaping. The girls were constantly watched by Johnny, and even if he wasn't around, there were always plenty of other people that were, and of course, Mama Sam. But, one night, the brothel was somewhat empty, as many of the girls had been taken out to work for the night. Only Johnny remained at the brothel, and... So I saw a little window in the bathroom, so I used spoon fork to unscrew that window while my prefigure was sleeping in front of the main doors. It was about four o'clock in the morning. I took the girls to the bathroom. I turned on the faucet with the water dripping. I climbed to the window and it was so high. I thought I will die if I jump out from that window. But it was enough. I couldn't take it anymore. I closed my eyes and I jumped and I was landed safely. I took a deep breath and I said, finally, this is my freedom. Only Chandra and the 15-year-old girl were able to escape as the window was so small. They were the only ones I'd been able to fit through the gap. Chandra looked up at the girls' faces peering down at her from the window. Fear etched on their faces, and she told them she would come back for them. She'd save them. And with that, Chandra and the other girl ran, taken in deep breaths of the fresh air, the wind rushing over their face and hair, and freedom saturating their souls. They ran until they couldn't run any more, until they found a phone booth. Chandra had taken her bag with her, and she ripped open the lining and took out some money, and that blessed lifeline, the phone number. She called the number, and a man answered, after rapidly telling him that she'd managed to escape and about the girl who'd given her his number, he told her to meet him at a hotel. The girls jumped into a taxi and went to the hotel where they met the man, whom went by the name of Stuart. Chandra asked Stuart to call the police immediately, but he was stalling, asking them if they wanted some food or something to drink. And the more they pressed, the more he stalled. Alarm bells were starting to ring for Chandra. Something wasn't right. And as they stood in the lobby of the hotel in this state of impasse, she caught something out of the corner of her eye. A familiar sight coming into the forecourt. Johnny's car. 
Realising that they had been duped, Chandra yelled at the fifteen-year-old to run. But Stuart was quick to respond, and he grabbed the fifteen-year-old and held on to her tightly. He was trying to grab for Chandra, but she was too quick for him, and she broke into a run, running out of the hotel, running into the heavy traffic, and running away from Johnny, whom had spotted her break from the hotel and had jumped into his car to give pursuit. But... He got snarled in the heavy New York traffic, and Chandra had never been so grateful for congestion and commuters in all her life as she ran through the streets, slowly being swallowed by the densely populated morning commuters. She ran, darting down side alleys, zigzagging across roads, until she could run no more. Checking in her bag to see what cash she had left, she pulled out a ten-dollar note. Hoping it was enough, she hailed a taxi and asked to be taken to the nearest police station. I went to Elizabeth Precinct in downtown Manhattan. I tried to talk to police officer, to the precinct, and I went to Indonesian Consulate General. None of them helped me. None of them believed to my story, to what happened with me. So who will believe me? Hmm. No one believed Chandra. Not the police, not the consulate, and not the community. It didn't help that Chandra's English wasn't fluent, so she found it difficult to communicate her story to the authorities. Because no one believed her, Chandra had nowhere to go. She certainly wasn't going to go back to the brothel. And so, Chandra ended up homeless. She slept rough in Central Park or in shop windows. She begged for money and food on the streets and rummaged for food in garbage cans. She met other homeless people, and through talking to them, her English began to improve. But, for three months, this is how Chandra existed. Until one day... I met someone. And that someone was called Eddie. He was a naval officer from Ohio who was visiting New York with his son on a tourist trip. Eddie and his son had been shopping when they decided to cut through Central Park instead of taking a taxi to their next destination. And as they walked through the park, they happened upon Chandra. She begged them for money or food, but... Instead of reaching into his pocket for some loose change or brushing her off as a homeless vagrant like most other people did, Eddie instead talked to her, asked her where she was from, why she was here in America begging on the streets. And Chandra, through the newly learned English from her homeless friends, was able to communicate enough of her story to Eddie that he understood what had happened to her. When she'd finished unloading her heavy burden, she was not sure if he believed her. Well, why would he when the police and the consulate hadn't? But, after pondering for a moment, Eddie told her to meet him at this location in Central Park at noon the next day. And with that, he left. Finally, someone believed her. Finally, someone was going to help her. But wait, 
What on earth was noon? She'd never heard this word before. Did it mean morning, afternoon or night? She'd absolutely no idea. She was so terrified of missing this opportunity for help that she ended up staying in that spot all night long, sleeping in the grass, waking at any and every sound, thinking it might be noon and Eddie would be returning. Some twenty-four hours passed, and Chandra had only moved from that spot to alleviate herself in nearby bushes. She was cold and terribly hungry, having not eaten anything since hours before she'd met Eddie the day before. As the time ticked by, she began to think that Eddie wasn't going to turn up, that he'd just placated her with the promise of help just to get away from her and her tragic story. But then, just as the sun was at its peak in the sky, she spotted him coming up the path, his little boy bounding excitedly along beside him. And then she spotted that Eddie and his son weren't alone, for following behind him were two FBI agents. He'd kept his word. He hadn't let her down. She was finally going to get help. Uh, would the police believe her? They hadn't the last time. He called the FBI and FBI directed us to go to the local dressing, which is Pitt Street. The officer took my case and helped me. Finally, people were believing her. But they were struggling to understand her. What little they could understand, the police were finding hard to believe. That she'd been brought to America and sold into the sex trade as a slave, escaped and lived homeless for three months. Well, it all seemed a bit far-fetched. However, calls to the airline and to immigration soon legitimised Chandra's story. She'd never gotten onto the plane six months after her arrival, as was required of her visa. And yes, she had outstayed her visa and was now deemed an illegal immigrant. All her life, Chandra had kept a journal, something that had been in the bag not confiscated by Johnny on her arrival at the brothel. And throughout her time as a sex slave, she had documented everything that had happened to her whilst in captivity. So, when she realised the police couldn't understand her, she pressed the journal into their hands, begging them to read it. But her journal was written in Indonesian. So, they called an interpreter. A Japanese interpreter. Aish. Fortunately, the Japanese interpreter identified the language as Indonesian, and the correct interpreter was finally brought in. <laughs> well, they finally got there in the end. The interpreter translated the passages of Chandra's journal relating to locations of the brothels, which was very detailed in its descriptions. But at no point had she written down an actual address. And this is because she never had actually known a physical address. She would recognise brothels by the landmarks that were close by, such as 
laundromats or shops, of which she had written the names of these in her journal. From this, the police were able to ascertain the region of the main brothel, the first one that she'd been brought to. It was in Flushing, New York. And so, the police bundled Chandra into a car and they drove to Flushing. And... They drove around and around for hours trying to find the brothel. Oh, they'd found the bar and the laundromat listed in the journal. But Chandra just couldn't find the street with the brothel. It was starting to get dark and the police were making noises that they should call it a night and come back tomorrow. But Chandra protested. She'd promised to help the other girls to get them out of there. And even though it had taken her three months, she was so, so close, she couldn't give up now. Because she knew if she were still in that house, she would not want to wait one more day to be rescued. And so she begged for just ten more minutes, and they conceded. They'd been driving the same route over and over with no luck, so the police decided to drive down a different block. And, as they passed by, the run-down, narrow brown brick buildings lined up beside each other like a row of rotting teeth. Things started to come into focus for Chandra. She recognised a broken gate hanging on its hinges. She recognised that graffiti on the blue front door. She recognised the street with its plethora of potholes. Sandra said, that's the house right there. We crashed the place. There was two other victims there. There was something like close to 10 male customers. I reunited with this girl. We were dancing. We were screaming. And I just, I just grateful and thankful that my life uh, was safe. Hmm. Amazing. The police made two arrests at the brothel. Two of the traffickers that were there one of whom was Johnny. But the ten male clients? <laughs> they walked away, scot-free. <sighs> but these weren't going to be the only arrests that they made. You see, our smart cookie, Chandra? Well, every time she'd been taken to a hotel or casino, she had pocketed matchbooks with the insignia of the facility on them. She'd kept them in her bag, along with her journal. And so, she handed the matchbooks over to the police. And, because they now had the locations where sex slavery was operating, they were able to take down several other traffickers. In fact, it became one of the largest human trafficking sting operations in the city. And soon, the police and the legal teams were gearing up for what was also to become the largest trial in New York in 2001. But there was one little problem. As Chandra had overstayed her visa, she was now considered an illegal immigrant. And, as such, she was facing deportation. If she was deported, she would never be allowed back into the United States. Ever. I know, I know, it doesn't sound fair. 
after enduring such horrific crimes and abuse, to escape and be homeless for months, to then go on and help the police bring down one of the biggest human trafficking rings in the city, to now be put on a plane and sent back home, just because she was in violation of immigration rules, rules she did not break of her own free will. Yeah, it seems a bit cruel, but those are the rules. No ifs, no ands, and no buts. I know, as I've had to navigate the labyrinth of rubrics that is the American immigration system myself, and it is very, very stringent. But Chandra was their star witness. Without her, they didn't really have a trial. Oh yes, the, the police had rescued many, many other girls in the sting operation. But none had kept a detailed record of events in a journal, or save matchbooks of their locations they'd been taken to, like Chandra had done. Yes, the other girls would be called on to testify, but without hard evidence to make their stories tangible, the defence could easily break down their testament into hearsay. Chandra was the only witness they had whom had firm evidence and whose story could not be stripped bare. They needed her. But... Rules are rules. Or are they? Now, I'm just going to diverge a little bit here. But stick with me. You'll catch my drift soon enough. At any point in this story so far, have you wondered why Chandra didn't call her family back in Indonesia for help? I certainly did when I was researching this story. Because I know that would have been the very first thing that I would have done if I'd have been in her position. Wouldn't you? And I had to do quite a bit of digging to find out why she didn't call them. Well, it was because she was afraid of the traffickers. How, I hear you ask? Well, in the paperwork she'd had to fill out when recruited, she'd had to put her home address, and that of her next of kin, her mother. She was terrified that the traffickers might go to her mother's house to see if she'd return to Indonesia to try capture her again. If she made contact with her family, they might be beaten into revealing her whereabouts. However, if they remained unaware of her location, it might help to keep them safe. Once the case was underway, the police wanted Chandra to reach out to her family to let them know she was safe. But Chandra refused, explaining her fear for her family. Only when they had agreed to contact the Indonesian authorities and request a police surveillance to be assigned to her family, did she concede to call them. And Chandra had been right to keep her vigil for three homeless months. For the traffickers did go to her mother's house, and for many weeks after her escape, they had cased the house on an almost daily basis, knocking on her mother's door at all hours of the day and night and intimidating the family. <laughs> what an amazing woman. I know, I know, I say that almost every week. But, come on, Chandra, well, she really is. She would rather have remained homeless, hungry, 
cold and begging on the streets in a foreign country, no friends, no family, and didn't speak the language, rather than run the risk of putting her mother and daughter in danger, even though she had no confirmation that they would be in danger. She just wasn't willing to run that risk. Would you have been able to do that? Hmm? However, because the traffickers had imposed a threat to Chandra's family, and potentially to Chandra if she returned to Indonesia, it was deemed unsafe for her to return home. And so, she was granted asylum in the United States. As part of her asylum status, she was told that she could choose a new name for herself, for her safety. But she decided to stick with good old Chandra Wawaruntu, because, after all, it was her name. The traffickers had taken so much from her, why should she give them that too? The prosecution were elated with the asylum status assigned to Chandra, they had their star witness. But the prosecution faced another problem. As firm and integral as Chandra's witness statement and evidence was for the trial, it was feared that she could still be easily brought down by the defence as an unreliable witness. Because she was a drug addict and an alcoholic. Before she'd come to America, she had rarely ever drunk and had never taken drugs. But all those months in the brothel, having pills and liquids poured down her throat on a daily basis, had turned her into an addict. Even her months of homelessness, with no income whilst living on the streets, hadn't abated the addiction. Whatever money she had procured had been spent mostly on drugs and alcohol. The prosecution needed her to get clean if she was to be a solid witness. She was assigned to community therapy for drug and alcohol dependency. But this was a once-a-week session, and Chandra's withdrawals gripped her every hour of every day. Plus, her English still wasn't fluent, and so she found it hard to communicate in the sessions or understand what was being said. And so, Chandra pushed herself through all the stages of withdrawal, enduring the shakes and the vomiting and the gut-wrenching pain, all alone. And throughout every agonising minute of withdrawal, she kept one goal as a focus, to bring her enslavers to justice. And when the trial started in late 2001, Chandra took to the stand, wearing a smart business suit, her hair neatly coiffed, her stance resolute and completely sober. Now, unfortunately, there is not much information available about the actual trial itself due to the identities of the trafficked girls whom testified needing to remain anonymous. However, I can tell you from what I've read that through a translator, Chandra was a little powerhouse in the courtroom and her statement was harrowing, compelling, and damning. The perpetrators were convicted, and you'll be glad to hear that all those rectal discharges are still in prison to this day, including Johnny. Well, 
Hallelujah and Amen. While Chandra had been going through the immigration process, she had been housed in a hotel paid for by the state. But once her asylum status was granted and the trial was over, she was now considered a refugee and thus received funding from Refugee Resettlement, an organisation that provides funding to assist new refugees in establishing themselves in America. And so, she was moved from the hotel to a shelter. And even though she was now safe, had a roof over her head and a small amount of income from the resettlement fund, she was struggling. She couldn't find work as she couldn't communicate well enough in English. And her lack of English left her isolated in the shelter as she found it hard to communicate with the other people. And then she started to have flashbacks of her ordeal, waking in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. These flashbacks would leave her in constant anxiety. And, sadly, she began to feel suicidal. She felt like she was in between worlds, not fitting in anywhere, not being able to go home, not being able to see a family, not having any real human connection in America. She wanted to speak to someone, anyone, a doctor, but she had no access to healthcare, and outside of the once-a-week community therapy sessions, which she was still struggling to understand and communicate with, there was no other support. And, just like with her battle to fight addiction, Chandra knew she needed a focus. She realised she was never going to find work, support, friendships or a solid foundation if she didn't learn English. And so, Chandra taught herself, pouring through books, learning her ABCs, and she took advantage of every opportunity she got to speak to people so that she could expand her vocabulary. And sure enough, this hard work paid off. In learning the language, a whole new world opened up to Chandra. Work, friendships, communication. And, by 2004, she had managed to move out of the shelter and into her own home. Slowly but surely, she was rebuilding her life. But it had been a tough road. Outside of the once-a-week community therapy sessions, she had received no other support. However, the one aspect she had learned from these community sessions that she had managed to glean was the understanding of the term trafficked. She hadn't known what term to apply to a situation initially, as to what had happened to her, or that trafficking was a well-known descriptive term. She had thought that she and the other girls in the car being led away from JFK on that day were a one-off situation. But now she knew differently. And Chandra couldn't help thinking, if it had happened to her, it must have happened to many, many others. And if others had escaped like her, then they surely too were finding it hard to assimilate into a normal life after being trafficked. Other victims must also be suffering the same problems as her. And so, she had an idea. I co-founded A Voices of Hope 
it is a survival support and leadership that allow me to connect with other people that have a similar situation with myself. The charity operated out of her own home. So she reached out to shelters all over New York City to other trafficking victims, offering them the help and support that they so desperately needed. I made my house as a shelter. I spent my money to help them. So I was able to shelter more than 100 women and girls in my house. It was so cathartic to Chandra and to the women that stayed at her house to be able to have a support structure, understanding and help in reaching the right groups for assistance with healthcare, financial aid and government support. But, as more and more people were pouring through her doors, money was becoming tight. There was little awareness of trafficking occurring in the United States at that time, so drumming up money to keep her doors open was proving difficult. And so, with help, advice and support from other survivors, she created the non-government organisation the Mentari Foundation. Mentari means sun, sunlight. What we do is we help survivors of human trafficking. Housing, food, clothing, we provide vocational training to earn money and live independently. This is empowerment. Before, I have these doubts, no confidence at all. Now, I'm a culinary educator and I'm happy living independently my own home. Mentari, they are not just a support system, but they are my family. I've learned to love again. The foundation was primarily funded by Freedom for All, a not-for-profit organization based in New York, whose mission is to end modern-day slavery. And now that she had financial backing, she reached out to more and more shelters across New York and New Jersey to help survivors. And, as cathartic and empowering as the foundation was, Chandra wanted to do more. Helping other traffic survivors was rewarding, yes, but as the numbers that needed help from the foundation grew, she realised that it wasn't enough just to help survivors. That was like putting a plaster on a gunshot wound and hoping it would make the pain go away. No. She needed to make people aware of the signs of trafficking, to help other girls and women from being lured into the same trap as her. And she wanted the government to do more to stop trafficking into the United States, for stricter measures to be put in place to hold countries across the globe accountable and culpable for human trafficking. <laughs> wow, she literally wants to change the world. <laughs> Now, in most of my stories whereby the protagonist has tried to effect change, we've heard time and time again how their voices weren't heard, how it took many, many attempts of banging on doors or marching through the streets before someone heard them. Well, this is no different for Chandra. As human trafficking was not known as a widespread problem in the USA, even though it was, people found her story hard to believe and her statistics hard to swallow. 
but the more doors that closed on her, and the more blank stares she received, the louder Chandra became. And she would keep getting louder until she was heard. I cannot leave to see and hear about the abuse, the girl being abused all over the world. Do we care? That it is happening here in New York, in America, in India, Africa, everywhere. 150 million people trapped in the modern slavery. So how many girls like me that are able to escape? How many girls that need to be rescued? Think about that. How many millions of girls that are waiting, waiting, waiting to be uh, outside of the situation to get her freedom? How many? We have to change our justice system. I deserve equal justice. The girls deserve equal justice. There is no more time to wait. We need to do. We need to act. Action is needed right now. And finally, her voice was heard. Representative Ted Poe had heard Chandra's address at a convention he attended. Poe had tried to introduce a bill previously that would have brought more awareness and justice for people whom were trafficked. But sadly, it hadn't passed into law, and Chandra's story and request for action might just be the human voice a bill often needs to get it over the line. Collaboratively, they created the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act of 2015, aimed at increasing services for survivors of human trafficking, as well as to strengthen and empower law enforcement and first responders. And, as if one bill wasn't hard enough to pass through the House and Senate, Poe and Chandra introduced a second bill, the Survivors of Human Trafficking Empowerment Act, which aimed to create a survivor-led US Advisory Council on Human Trafficking which aimed to review federal government policy and programs on human trafficking. This bill aimed also to introduce legislation that workers recruited overseas knew their rights, were not charged fees, and were told the truth about the salary and living conditions they can expect in the United States. And, I know, normally I relay in previous stories how the bill didn't pass, or was amended along the way. But, not this time. Unbelievably, both bills were passed unanimously. Chandra's story, her fight to bring awareness and culpability for human trafficking, made waves through the United States, but most especially in Washington. So much so, that in 2015, President Obama appointed her as one of the 11 members of the U.S. Advisory Council on Human Trafficking. <laughs> hmm. I'll say it again. What an amazing woman. And from here, Chandra set out to bring awareness and justice all over the world. She established an Indonesian branch of Mentari, which distributes educational comic books to children of Indonesia to educate them on the signs to recognise in a human trafficker. 
she has spoken at conventions around the world and has even addressed the United Nations and Interpol. She has won a plethora of awards across the globe for her dedication and dogmatic work towards ending and bringing awareness to human trafficking. But do you think Chandra has stopped there? Oh my goodness, no. With an estimated 14,000 people still being trafficked into the USA every year, Chandra won't stop fighting until that number is zero. And in late 2019, Chandra, in conjunction with Representative Lois Frankel, created the Visa Transparency Anti-Trafficking Act, which was introduced to the House. I've yet to find out if this bill has passed, because as we all know, the world ground to a halt in early 2020. But don't worry. I think we're going to be hearing much, much more from Chandra in the years to come. A few years after being granted asylum in the USA, Chandra was given permanent residency. This small slip of paper welded into her passport, identifying her as a permanent resident in the United States, symbolised sanctity, a hopeful future, a home and freedom. But for Chandra, it meant something much, much more. In 2004, Chandra found herself back at JFK Airport, back at where her journey into hell had begun. And standing there in the terminal that she'd been stood in three years before, back when she thought her American dream was just starting. She felt the same pang of excitement reverberate in her stomach as she had that day, three years before. But today, it was a different type of excitement. This one wasn't born of the nervousness of being in a strange new country, apprehensive of the journey that lay before her. No, this one was born of expectation, safety, prospect, hope and happiness. And as the doors before her swung open, her heart swelled and her eyes brimmed over with tears at the sight of the two faces that came rushing at her, enveloping her in their love and they in hers. And as she clung to her mother and her daughter, tears ran down her face. For now, holding the two most precious people in the world to her, in the land she'd always dreamt of coming to. She knew her American dream was finally beginning. I hope you liked today's story, Chandra's story. A woman whom was in search of a better life for herself, but ended up creating a better life for so many, many other people who were and are to this day still victims of human trafficking. Now, normally at this point in the episode, I thank people for contributing their voices to the story. But this week, I didn't use any other voices. I didn't have to. Chandra's voice rings so loud and so ardent. I did not want to detract from that passion for awe and travesty that her story and her quest for justice brings. But 
However, I do have thanks to give elsewhere. Oh yes, it's that time of the week again, where I utterly annihilate and offend some new countries to the podcast. So, this week, I'd like to thank Germany. Hallo und Dankeschön. And Sweden. Hey, och taxa mikit. Phew, a little easier this week, but I'm quite sure I have just traumatised my Deutsch and Swedish listeners. As always, my sincerest apologies, so long as you know that I'm grateful. Lastly, before I sign off this week, I have a bit more housekeeping to do, and it is with a heavy heart that I have to deliver this piece of news. Sadly, I have to move the podcast, hopefully only temporarily, to fortnightly, or to weekly for my American friends. I've really tried not to do this, but my everyday job, and yes, I do actually have an everyday job, I'm not just a podcaster. Well, it is part of a key service industry that is working really, really hard to keep this country safe during the pandemic. My workload has been ever-increasing for the past few months as we try to navigate our way out of this pandemic. I don't want to sell you, my lovely listeners, short by producing subpar stories because I'm rushing to get an episode out. So, unfortunately for the foreseeable, until we are finally rid of this wretched virus and have some semblance of normality, I do, sadly, have to move to fortnightly episodes. Much like my total destruction of pronunciations each week, I offer my deepest apologies. I do hope you'll stay with me for the ride, until we come out the other side. So, as I'm letting you down greatly for the foreseeable, I won't be asking you to rate and review this week. But I will ask you to come and join me on Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Dark Side. I recently put a post in both forums about my dog, a West Highland White Terror. No, I did not mispronounce that. She really is a terror. And she's been named as a perpetrator. Come join me on Instagram and Facebook and find out why. So, until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. <laughs>